it's a good practice before you preach sometimes to see who you're preaching to. And just a very warm welcome. I first want to note in the back there, Bob and Becky Gonzalez, so glad to have you on this part of the world. Welcome back to Greenville. Good to have you guys. And then Janice Worth, if you'll raise your hand, I'm not sure how many, just raise, or so we had a lot of new people. There's Janice. So Janice and her husband were in England and then for many, many years in Blackpool, two years ago, moved from Blackpool to Glasgow where their son Paul is. And then 11 months ago, the Lord took Steve home. And um, for that, we're very, very sorry. But we know, as you were telling me on the phone yesterday, he's in a better place. He is unbridled joy. He does. He does. And for your children, Steve and his family in Atlanta and Paul in Glasgow and Sarah, just married last September. In September, our love, please, our greetings from Grace Baptist Church to your family. And uh, may the Lord be with you even tonight's message, the idea of his presence, your encouragement. Um, I would like tonight for us to take just a moment and go to the Lord. And um, before we open the word, our Father, we thank you for the joy of having Janice with us tonight, that she uh, is a testimony of your sustaining grace, that you are the God of all comfort. Thank you for sustaining her over these 11 months and the years before when Steve was dealing with Parkinson's. Thank you your care for her. We pray that you would continue that. Thank you for Bob and Becky and their, their joy, their work, and now they're moved down to South Florida with the seminary. We pray that you uh, would give them great joy and steadfastness in the work. Thank you um, for them as well. And we uh, do remember these saints, Janice and Bob and Becky. We, were th- we remember them tonight, Father, with joy. And pray now that as we open the word, that you might be with us in a peculiar and special way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Turn with me in your copy of God's word to Exodus 33. Brian Chapel says that... The reading of the sermon text is really integral to the sermon. It's the first part of the sermon. It's understandable why Paul would tell Timothy to pay uh, special attention to the public reading of Scripture to devote himself to that. And children, I, I want to give you a challenge to think about how you read Scripture and that this is God's Word. This is unique. This, this is not just any book. It's a very special um, putting together of 66 books that God breathed out. And so when we read the Word and when we hear it, we hear it for what it is, special. In fact, Paul says to Timothy, He wrote and said that the word 
that all scripture is inspired by God, literally breathed out. You know how you see your breath on a cold day. Well, the Bible is God's breath. It's his breathing out of his mind and will. So follow me as we read Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And of course we know this as the tabernacle. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, and I want to just point out that phrase, found favor in my sight. Remember that expression. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me, your, show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, that is the Lord, said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. 
And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until you have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Well, you know, it's a common question from one person to another. Will you go with me? Or I'll go if you go with me. It's like I remember being at Lake Chocassie way up on a cliff and seeing our kids really only having the courage to jump from certain heights if their brother or sister would jump with them. You know, or the water is really, really cold, and you're thinking, I don't want to swim, but if you swim, I'll swim. And we all understand that sometimes we're unwilling to go somewhere or do something hard or difficult if we must go or do it alone. Maybe it's a medical appointment, starting a business, having a hard but necessary conversation with another person. Even 10 years ago when we were preparing to go to China, I knew that if the Lord would go with us, if this church would hold the rope and Cheryl would go with me, then I was willing to go. You know what it's like? You crave having someone with us. We crave this companionship. Even the psalmist in Psalm 10, I think, expressed something of a desire for this as he's expressing his isolation, this sense of God far away. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? But if you have this buddy or traveling partner alongside you, you'll screw your courage up and you'll say, I'm in. I can do this or that, which previously I could not summon the strength to do. And I think this is Moses' state of mind here in Exodus 33. He could not imagine going without God's presence. And God will show Moses that his presence was Moses and therefore Israel's special possession. Well, here's my outline. It's very, very simple. And as we look at this text tonight, and first it's to know that his presence we'll see is joined to a positive command in verse one. And I'll repeat these, but his presence is joined to a positive command. Secondly, his presence is rooted you might say founded in his promises in verses 2 and 3. And then I want to take his presence, a fruit of Moses' petition from verses 12 through 16. And then finally from verse 16, the second half, his presence, our peculiar distinction. Our pres- his presence, our peculiar distinction. So first, I want us to see 
here in verse 1 that God's presence is joined to a positive command. If you think about it, the trip from Egypt east and north to the promised land could have been accomplished in a mere fortnight, maybe in two weeks travel, if it had been without interruption, without distraction, without temptation, without God's discipline. But for Israel's spiritual formation, and according to Paul in Romans 15, for our instruction, the two weeks stretched into 40 long years of painful wandering in the wilderness. Now, you think about scope creep on a project. Imagine you think, hey, 14 days will arrive. And it's 39 years, 11 months, and two weeks later that you actually arrive. That's pretty, that's scope, we say scope creep. And the children of Israel had already come up in a sense, if you think about this, from Egypt up to the Sinai Peninsula, moreover, if you will, particularly up and over, when God brought them out of Egypt to the Sinai Peninsula. But there's more yet to do. And so there's this positive command. You know the state of things if you've read the the last verse there in chapter 32. It's plague-like. Maybe some of you men know what it's like to come home and your wife has said, there's a matter you need to deal with when you get home. There's a matter of discipline with one of the kids. And you walk in and the house is somber. Does anyone know what I'm like? You know, you're coming home and you know there's, there's some news. It's not all good. There's something you've got to deal with. And that's the situation here. The Lord sent a plague on the people. But there's this positive command and the Lord gives it to his servant Moses. He's unambiguous here. You can't miss it. He doesn't mince words. Depart, go up from here, from the wilderness, you and the people who you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. You cannot stay here. And I want you to think about the people of Israel were still, they were still smarting from God's discipline over the golden calf incident. At least 3,000 had died at the hands of the sons of Levi and their sharp swords, if not more, because of this plague that the Lord had sent on the people in judgment. No doubt there was still blood-stained ground. But discipline, and there's a principle here, discipline, God's discipline, does not imprison us to a place of no action or no further obedience. Discipline does not negate the next act of obedience of positive command. And Yahweh does not abandon the people here in the wilderness. Nor does he allow Moses to do the same. Look how he connects Moses here in verses 1 and 2 to the people. First, the group that is to depart is Moses in the multitude that's in the encampment. He says, you and the people. All right? And then second, the Lord connects Moses to the people by giving Moses credit for bringing the people up out of the land of Egypt. It kind of reminds me, Moses and Yahweh have this, the way sometimes we speak of your children. Sometimes, right, we speak of our children, mom, kids, you see this with mom and dad. Sons, maybe, if, boys, if you've been maybe disobedient, 
your mom might say to your father, this son of yours, maybe you've heard something like that, all right? This son of yours needs a spanking. And so Moses and the Lord seem to have this where they're giving credit that the people of Israel are yours. No, they're yours. You see this going on here, all right? But the Lord strikes a posture somewhere between crediting Moses for bringing the children of Israel up out of Egypt. In those words, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. And that in comparison to Exodus 20, the prologue to the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God claims that for his own, but here with Moses giving credit to Moses, but also reminding Moses of his ongoing responsibility for the people of Israel. This was always true ever since Yahweh's call to Moses out of the burning bush in Exodus 3. Well, second, I want us to see God's presence rooted in his promise in verses 2 and 3. The potential of God's presence is anticipated, it's rooted in his promise to his people. You might remember the Lord's promises were a fourfold program of blessing given to Abram. They're in Romans or in, in Genesis 12. There was offspring to this childless couple. There was land, a land they had never seen. There was, uh, right, they couldn't go and look online at that land and see pictures of it or a plat of land. God says, go to this land that I'll show you. Get up and go. God said also, not just offspring, not just land, but God would give him a great name and a multi-layered blessing. Even this morning, Pastor Jamie was preaching to us from Hebrews 6, 14. And there the writer is quoting from Genesis twenty two seventeen, And he says, surely I will bless you and multiply. And there, that word surely is not in there. It's a grammatical thing to bless you, I will bless you. It's to emphasize that it's impossible for it not to happen. It's the language of swearing, not the bad type of swearing, but the oath type of swearing. God is swearing by himself. There was no one greater to swear by. So now the focus, though, here in Exodus 33 is on the land. Go up. Go up to the land which I swore to your forefathers, saying, to your offspring I will give it. But to Moses, he says, you'll need some help. You must go, but I will send my angel. And I believe this is a Christophany. This is the second person of the Trinity to go with the children of Israel. And the hornets, those bad boys, the hornets that are mentioned in Exodus 23, 20, 28. To drive out the inhabitants and bring you to a rich and abundant land because it will be yours. That's the good news. But now the bad news. And you see it right there, right? You see it in verse 3. The first half of the verse would be no problem. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, I'm tracking with you, God. But then he says, but I will not go up among you. There's the bad news. All right? Really bad news. Do you remember the Lord's words to Moses in, 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 uh, in our last message? Look across the page there in Exodus 32 and verse 9. 
after Moses has come down from the mountain, and the people with under Aaron's leadership, they've they right, they've they've contributed this gold and they fashioned a, the idol of the golden calf. Look at God's assessment to Moses, verse nine. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Hard, hard words, the very same hard words that when Stephen used them in Acts 17, within a few moments, the stones of the, the church's first martyr probably rained upon him there in Acts 7. But this is God's assessment. His own people. I've seen his people. Behold, is a stiff-necked people. It's as though God is so hot with his people that he's afraid of himself, humanly speaking, about what he might say or do to them. Some of you know what that's like. It's like when you're really hot and you write an email and you realize, don't hit send. Whatever you do, put it in the draft and pray. <laughs> Think. Get counsel. Maybe some of you parents know that sometimes you must count slowly to a hundred. You must take a long walk as in very long walk. You must get on your knees and, in, and, and pray with the publican, God be merciful to me, the sinner too, before you even dare to discipline your children in your white hot anger. Do you know what I mean? You know what I mean? And so formerly the Lord had wanted Moses to leave him alone right there. Look at that. Exodus 32, 10. <laughs> Think about that. God is saying, I need some time by myself or I'm going to act very badly. This is how it's presented to us. Let me alone so I can do what I need to do. Right? The Lord wanted Moses to leave him alone previously so he could consume the sons of Israel and yet still make a great nation, literally starting all over from scratch with Abraham alone. Look at that, verse 10, chapter 32. That's what it means. But Moses implores the Lord, and the Lord relents from the disaster he would bring on the sons of Israel. But this thread remains. And so Yahweh's initial unwillingness to go up among you is rooted in his commitment to keep his promise to them. In human language, he was at risk to destroy his inheritance. And Abram would have had a countless multitude he would have a, a countless multitude of offspring. They would dwell in a land of milk and honey. Yahweh would make his name great in contrast to those in Genesis 11 who wanted to make their own name great with the Tower of Babel. And the Lord would bless Abram such with this program of blessing that he would bless those who blessed him. He would curse those who cursed him. And he would cause, he would bless the entire world such that, depending on how you translate it, the whole world would bless themselves as, as a result. They'd be blessed as a result of Abraham and his descendants. 
presence. Long before there was Yahweh's presence, there were these rich and varied promises by Yahweh to Abram. I want to move thirdly for us to think about his presence was a fruit of Moses' petition there in verses 12 through 16. Have you ever thought, think about this, who knows this name? Have you ever heard this? Prayer changes things. Who's heard that before? Yeah. Have you ever kind of thought that seemed trite? Would anyone admit that seems like a stock and trade? Yeah. I see an honest hand. Okay. Another hand. Okay. Have you ever thought that God intends prayer, fervent, desperate prayer to accomplish his will? He actually does. Here's the people, and I paraphrase. Oh, so we're to go up to the promised land, but he's not going with us? Have you ever seen this in YouTube in these dangerous situations with an armed shooter that the captain in charge is pushing the guys that are subordinate to him? He's pushing them forward. Has anyone seen that in the video? It's scary. It's like, I'm in charge, and we need to neutralize this threat, but you guys go, and I'll push you forward while I stay back. That's a little bit of the spirit here. Oh, so we're to go up to the promised land, but you're, you're going to, like, hang back? You're not going with us? Look at the mood here. This was disastrous. I mean, almost akin to the disciples on the night of our Lord's crucifixion. Not a good look. They mourn. No festal hour. (laughs) Everything was off. No feasts. Off with the ornaments. Moses had delivered the message. But can you feel the Lord's anger? If there was ever a moment where you could say, it almost seems that God has a healthy distrust of himself. Look what he says. Analyze this. If for a single moment I was to go up among you, I would consume you. That's like your spouse talking to you and saying, if I were to talk to you face to face right now, I couldn't say anything nice. I couldn't say anything kind. I'm so frustrated with you. But that's what's going on here. And this described the people of Israel in their encampment. Here they had this positive command to go east and north From the Sinai Peninsula to the promised land. But the word they had, though the Lord said, I'll send my angel before you. I'll send the hornets to drive out the inhabitants of the land. But I myself, I will not go up among you. Verse 3. And this is what Moses is facing. But Moses pursued God. It's the implication of verses 7 through 11. I want you to notice for a moment that God is speaking to Moses here. Look at this. All of verses 1 through 6, God is doing the speaking. So now watch this. In verses 7 through 11, there's no one quoted. It's just a narrative. So that's like the quiet moment between God giving the word, the positive command, but also the negative news, the bad news that he's not going up with them. Because if he would, he'd consume them. 
And then there's this almost pastoral scene, the encampment, and there's the tent of meeting out there. And Moses is responsible for pitching the tent. He does it outside, the tent of meeting outside of the camp. And you'll see something about Moses. It says, and everyone, look at the second half of verse 7. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now look at the next verse. Now whenever Moses went out to the tent. So the implication is that Moses was numbered among those who sought the Lord. Moses, by his very own writing, is highlighting the fact As the servant of Yahweh, he's seeking Yahweh. And it says, when he went into the tent, the Lord peculiarly visited that place. It said, the pillar of cloud would come down and stand at the entrance of the tent. Now, kids, I want you to imagine imagine this just for a moment. Imagine that you knew that every time your grandparents would come and visit your house and you'd be playing down the street, the way you would know that your grandparents had come was that a pillar of cloud had descended at your front door. And you could see it. Just imagine that for a moment. This is the scene. This is what Moses said happened. And I don't think we should interpret that as once for all. The people then would worship in response to this sight. And they're like friend with friend within the tent of meeting. The Lord, presumably out of the, the cloud, the pillar of cloud would speak to Moses. And you know what Moses did? Remember, this was the Moses who sought the Lord. This is the Moses with whom Yahweh would speak face to face. This is what he did. He straight up petitioned the Lord on behalf of Israel. And let me translate this. Lord, you haven't given me all the details yet. When he says, look, you say to me, verse 12, bring up this people, but you haven't let me know whom you will send with me. It's like the person that you're always wanting more details. You think you've given them a lot of information. They hit you back with more. This is like Moses here, right? Lord, you claim to know me by name. You tell me that you, that I have your favor in your sight. I have favor in your sight. I found it. But now look in verse 13, if you haven't noticed, that Moses argues with the Lord in a prayer that in a way seems circular. Okay, watch this. If as you say, Lord, I have found favor in your sight, then show me your ways. That is, reveal yourself to me. Do that so I may know you. And having known you, out of that may have favor in your sight. Do you see how that's circular? He starts with, if I have favor in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you, that I may find favor in your sight. Where I'm from, we call that circular reasoning. So we might say this is a case of a circular prayer by Moses. But he's arguing, arguing here with God. It works. And Moses now flips the script on the Lord as though 
He thought it necessary to school the Lord that it was him, that it was Yahweh, not Moses, that had the right of ownership with the children of Israel. You know how little children, what are they always doing? They're arguing, mine. No, it's mine, right? That's not yours, it's mine. That's like the oldest argument between children. But look what's happening. He says, consider that too that this nation is your people. They're your people. That's the basis. The Lord has just given them a positive command. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. In fact, look again, 32, 7, chapter 32, verse 7. The Lord had said, go down for your people. For your people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And there seems to be this tug of war. But if ever prayer moved God, it was right here. I don't know if you can say with theological precision that prayer moves God, but I know here that there's no rebuttal, there's no argument. There's no resistance. Look at verse 14. The Lord doesn't say, could you repeat that? Could you underscore your argument? No, this is all he says. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. It's as though he said, Moses, you win. You won me over, as you wish. Is God moved by Moses' intercession? I think so. Does God answer Moses' prayer? I'd say so. Did God change his mind? Why debate it? What is beyond debate is that the Lord promised his, press with, his presence with Moses and Israel on their way to the promised land and the rest that it represented to his people. And God located that promise immediately one verse after Moses implored him for it. Why don't we ask our Heavenly Father for those things we need? As Philip Van Steenberg urged us over five messages last week during our Bible conference, for a lifting of those burdens that we bear. Think of the motivation for the son when he said in John 14, 13, did not the, and it, it, the, this is Jesus saying this, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. And here's his reasoning, that the father may be glorified in the son. If there's anything we know from John 13 through 17, is that the father delights to be glorified in the son. And so I say, brothers, I say, sisters, whatever you ask, in his name, he says, I will do it. Didn't James also write, you do not have because you do not ask in James 4.2? Have we given up imitating Moses? When we read in Romans 15 that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through encouragement and hope, perseverance we might have hope. Are we not to imitate Moses here? So I have a question for you. Can anyone, anywhere, anymore testify to you praying prayers that could be called imploring, imploring prayers? Are your prayers wrote? Are they not bold? 
Do your, or do your prayers reflect the mind of the Son of God when he said, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Where's the final point? And that is that his presence is our peculiar distinction. And I think it's interesting, without looking at it, if I were to ask you, who is it that says that God's presence is what makes his people distinct? If you think it's the Lord that asserts that, in your mind you may raise your hand now. You don't need to do it. Or do you think it's Moses that asserts it? Which one is it? Jamie's. Jamie. Jamie's asserting. It's Moses. That's right. It's Moses that in effect is so bold as to say, God, let me tell you what's distinct about us, your people. Our final point is simply the presence. About his presence is the title of our message. His presence with us is our distinction. Or more importantly, his distinction for us. And by that I mean our special and peculiar distinction as the people of God, as the covenant community. Some of you know there's a famous book on networking uh, that I really love the title. It says, Never Eat Alone. Who knows the title of that book? Anyone ever seen that book? Never Eat Alone? Something like that? Okay. Do you know that we as the people of God, we never eat, we never Mm -hmm. gather, we never pray, we never go alone. He goes with us. I want you to see that Moses keeps pressing with the Lord even after the Lord had given him what he was seeking. He kind of basically is like, I need a guarantee, God. Because you'll notice after verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. You don't read that Moses says, well, that settles it, Lord. We're all happy now. He presses him. All right? And that's the sum and substance of those verses, 15 and 16. First, he was so bold that he dared to imply that God ought not to keep his promise that is land if he would not go with his people. Think about this. Think about that. Moses is saying that piece of the program of your promise, the fourfold thing of offspring, land, a great name, and a program of blessing. Like, Lord, if you don't go with us, we're not interested in leaving. We'll we'll, we'll just hang right here, okay? If he wouldn't go. Second, he hemmed God in with a single litmus test for whether he and the children of Israel had found, truly found favor in Yahweh's sight. And it's there in in the second half of verse 16. Look Look at it. And he's piling on these questions here, two two back to back. Look what he says. He says, he asks this first question and then he'll provide the answer. How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? And he asks God a rhetorical question. Paul is often asking us rhetorical question that the answer is implied in the question itself. But here it is. Is it not, Moses says, in your going with us so that we are distinct? Lord, what makes us distinct from all the peoples, every other people on the earth, is that you dwell with us. That's it. And I want to paraphrase Moses' words here. 
And I want you to hear the personal pronouns as I, uh, as I give this. O sovereign Lord, we will know that we have found favor in your sight by your presence, by your faithful going with us as your people to the land that you have promised to give us. This is what makes us distinct from every other people on the face of the earth. And this is the pattern for the new covenant. We have a friend that speaks of the long form or the short form of the new covenant. Another pastor friend, that I will be your God and you will be my people. So what can that repeated refrain here from Jeremiah 30 verse 22 that you see throughout the book of Jeremiah about I will be your God, you will be my people. What can that mean but the promise of God dwelling with us? Was not this the promised son of the virgin in Isaiah's prophecy, Emmanuel or God, literally God with us? And how does the Lord respond to Moses' full frontal petition? It's all there in verse 17. Look at it with me. Dare I say that the Lord speaks to Moses as those Moses' words had captured God's very heart. It's as as though if God was ever beholden to anyone here, you could almost venture to say he was beholden to Moses. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. May Pastor Jamie and I do this as co-pastors. If he says, Mark, can you handle this? I would, and I say, yes, yes, sir. This very thing that you say, I will do. We do this as co-laborers in the gospel. But here is the Lord speaking to Moses. And what can Moses say in response? But only, please show me your glory. Please now. It's this language of request, kind of very humbly, open-handed, Lord. But this one thing, show me your glory. A simple interjection, a simple request. Uncomplicated. And Moses asks for glory. But the Lord offers a glimpse of his goodness in a very short proclamation sermon that we'll see next week in chapter 34. Look what he says. And I love this. Think of the sweetness of this. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. If you knew by a sure prophetic word that tomorrow on the outside of our vestibule, on that part with the columns, if you knew that at 2.15 in the afternoon, the Lord's would pass by and he'd show every one of us his goodness. And he would make this proclamation He'd proclaim before us his name. Would you not be there? Would you not be there? Think about that. 
And then he gives his covenant name, the Lord. We'll see more of this next week. And we don't know what Moses had in mind when he said, show me your glory. But God had a a plan. He's good, but he's still God. God is good, but God is God. God is gracious, but God doesn't play. Right? You see this here. In his transcendence, think about this, in his transcendence, he'll be gracious, he says, to whom he will be gracious and he will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. But in his imminence, in his nearness, he will draw near to and he will dwell with his people. And this is what he promises if you will draw near to him. You will no longer need to make everything about you. You will be free to leave your sins behind. You'll be free to hold every hope, every prayer, every heart-pained desire, every plan in an open hand before him. As sovereign Lord, why? How? And children of GBC, I want you especially to hear this. If you have him, if he is present with you through his indwelling Holy Spirit and the living Christ, then you have all that you will ever need. Him. Yeah.